Hi, I'm Nick. I'm Rory. And I'm Jay. And this is Midnight Chats, an Octavian companion show where we sit down with your favorite paranormal authors, investigators, and researchers and have a chat about their work, the phenomenon, and all the strangeness in between. On this episode, we are joined by researcher, member of UAP Media UK, and the creator of Shadows of Your Mind magazine, Dave Partridge. And oh my God, he made me feel stupid. Yeah, he's a smart dude. Yeah, he's very, very smart. Uh, We had a lot of fun talking just generally UAP phenomenon, Mm -hmm. the current uh, climate of disclosure, the political considerations of disclosure. Honestly, we just talked about a lot. Yeah, we we did. We hit a lot in uh, like, you know, 55 minutes or whatever it was. My brain is leaking out my ears, but that's a good thing. I feel fulfilled spiritually, (laughs) intellectually. It's great. (laughs) I hope you, our listeners at home, will feel the same way. Hopefully, this episode will bring some light into your lives, dear listeners. And so, sit back, relax, and let's listen to an interview with Dave Partridge. the phone with Dave Partridge, creator of Shadows of Your Mind magazine and member of UAP Media UK. Hey, Dave, thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us from all the way on the other side of the ocean. Hey, no problem. Thanks. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've been a big fan of your magazine since it came out. I've been bits and pieces working my way through the issues that I've missed as we go. So getting right into our questions here um, before we get too derailed. Our, f- our first question is one that we like to ask all of our guests up front uh, as we are a book club, which is what are you currently reading and what sort of books do you tend to gravitate towards? OK, currently reading is a uh, book by a guy called Bernard Newman, um, who was working for British intelligence. And this this is a book from 1948 and it's called The Flying Saucer. Hmm. Um, now, it's unique in the it kind of predates um, most of ufology as we know it, um, but it also takes a unique slant. Where I mean, I'm not going to give any spoilers away because basically you get the whole plot within the first twenty pages anyway. Um, but basically, this little think tank conglomerate of um, a scientist and two spies or agents, intelligence agents, they decide that the only way for the world to live is in peace. So by doing that, they stage um, an attack from Mars. Hmm. Really? Yeah. So is is this, sorry, is this fiction or nonfiction? Well, (laughs) as far as I can tell, it's, uh, yeah, true through fiction. Okay. But yeah, no, it's it's really good because in the, um, you know, it delves into like the ghost rockets over Sweden in 1946. It kind of mentions um, that the Americans are looking into flying saucers at that time, which they were, because it was written probably a year after the Roswell incident. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, they just uh, come up with this grand scheme to try and fool the United Nations and the people of the world, the governments of the world, 
that Mars intends to attack Earth. Huh. Sounds like my kind of book. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, uh, if, if you can find it, um, it goes for a pretty high price on eBay. But, you know, you get lucky if you keep an eye on the auctions. Yeah. Oh. I'll set a, uh, a reminder so it'll tell me every time a new one pings on eBay. Also, we're going to yeah, be uh, thrifting soon here. So yeah. we'll keep an eye out <laughs> while we're in the thrift shop, see if it come, turns up. All right. Well, getting into, I guess, uh, the more substantive questions here. For our listeners at home who don't know, uh, can you tell them a little bit about your imprint, Shadows of Your Mind, and where the idea came from? Sure. I mean, the idea, I suppose, back in 2015, where I joined the company that I work for at the moment, um, there were a couple of my colleagues um, were just having like water cooler talks, as you call them. And they just happened to mention, oh, have you heard? Do you listen to Coast to Coast? Do you listen to Fade to Black? You know, do you know who Billy Meyer is? Do you know who Bob Lazar is? That kind of thing. It's like, what? What are you talking about? Because um, I kind of delved into the whole UFO subject when I was younger, during my teenage years. I read a lot of uh, Timothy Good books. Um, and I was into, um, I mean, Carl Sagan was the genesis of my interest in the subject anyway. Um, and it was during these water cooler moments where I suddenly kind of started digesting all the radio shows and podcasts that I could that were around at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was learning so much while trying to digest all this information that was being uh, kind of thrust upon me through these radio shows that I needed an outlet for well, just for me to kind of make sense of all this information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so effectively, I mean, it's very, kind of funny because very the podcast serves a similar function yeah, for was, us. I was just thinking that. Uh, I was like, this is kind of like our excuse to do the exact same thing. Yeah. Uh, mm. No, so that, that's interesting. So I guess prior to that, you said you had done some research when you were younger. Uh, did you have any sort of experiences? I guess what initially sparked your interest in this field? To be honest, it was um, the chapter on extraterrestrials in the Carl Sagan book Cosmos. Okay, um, which is which my father used to have on on the bookshelves when I was growing up, and it was always fascinating to see these images. You know, you had the um, the Adamski flying saucer in there. You had another couple of pictures that, you know, as an impressionable eight nine year old kid, you know, you you want to believe that these things actually exist. And there's these illustrations in there of like a little hobbit being um, a grey and a little goblin. And you think, well, you know, if if aliens do invade, then they're only going to be like four feet tall and they're going to be hairy or, or hairless. So, you know, where's the threat? Yeah. Um, but from there, you know, it was, I think it was during the teenage years, during the, you know, during my exams, the high school years where I kind of, it was a mix of heavy metal and UFO stuff that kind of got me through it. As well as Beavis and Bad. So, you know, I, I credit them a lot. Yeah, I, uh, I I also credit them to some of my humor, unfortunately. <laughs> it's aren't, the re- they, aren't they doing a new one here soon? I think so, but it's still... They are, and they do, the new um, incarnations of Beavis and Bad do look very much like two members of the UFO community. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I saw the sketches, I think, on Twitter yesterday, and I, I agree. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, rearrange these two words, office, basement. <laughs> yeah, oh. you'll get everyone talking about. Um, but yeah, I mean, from there, you know, I kind of dropped out. I, I have a background in magazine design in the UK, so, you know, I was kind of 
I worked for a music magazine for a bit. I started a band, you know, I was lead singer in a punk metal band for a while. Dope. Um, and then I just completely forgot about it until I, you know, joined this company. Huh. I work for at the moment and start, start chatting about it. And I thought, right, the best way for me to try and make sense of this all is to use my skills mm-hmm. that I've gathered over the years. Um, and I've learned so much from the UK publishing industry, having been in that environment for so long. I thought, you know, I'll try and do it myself. Okay. Well, very cool. Now, uh, before we uh, started the interview, you did mention, obviously, by the time this interview comes out, uh, the last issue of Shadows in Your Mind will be uh, Shadows of Your Mind will be released. Um, mm-hmm. Is there? Can would you be able to speak to what the reason for that is? Um, yeah, I'm taking a break, not from the subject, but I'm just taking a break from the daily grind and the kind of the responsibility of trying to output a magazine. Oh, of I, such quality and of you know it seems to be getting bigger and bigger every time every issue that i produce you know the first one i put out i think was less than 60 pages and now the last one i did was over 120 yeah yep yep and so you know i just i mean there was a reason for that as well because it took me i had some personal things going on towards the tail end of last year you know basically from august onwards so that's kind of like two issues in one okay the last one, but I want to write a book. Well, write two books. Sorry, uh, one fiction, one nonfiction. Is your nonfiction work going to be uh, on this topic on the UAP problem? Yeah, it will be. Um, it will be focusing on the um, the history of UFOs in Wales. Oh, oh. that's awesome! Well, well, we'll definitely be picking that up. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely have to cover it on the show. Uh, I didn't have time to read it, but I did see that you had an article in one of your issues on the Welsh Triangle, and I am extremely fascinated by this uh, by this crop of horrible triangles of mischief that are creeping up <laughs> all across the world and just destroying people with their evil parallel sides. I. I really do like what mischief triangles of mischievous evil. Mischievous evil yeah. triangles. Yeah, I, li- I like that. That's a good description of it. See, and I'm just curious because I, I study uh, druidry through Obad, which is based out of the UK with the Order of oh. Bards, uh, Ovates and Druids. And I am super curious to see if there's any overlap because there's so much of the history of druidry that comes from, like, comes from Wales, so... Oh, absolutely. I mean, when, when people talk about the Celts, they immediately think the Irish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the Celtic nations, you know, it was the conglomeration of the Welsh, the Irish, the Scots, yep. Wales as a country kind of took up most of the United Kingdom at one point. I mean, the, 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 like the core of so much, uh, folktale that comes out of that time frame is all, is Welsh, you know, with the Mabinogion. Mm. Mabin- yeah. Mabin- 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 yeah, that's the one. That's the one. <laughs> I like how we Jay and I both pronounced it differently, but we all understood. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think Professor Burke taught us to say it completely differently because I think he changes how yeah, he says we, it every we, semester. We learned that from the same professor. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And there's two copies of it in this house. It's like different people pronouncing uh, the Teo. Was it the Teo Duth Tanan? Oh, the Tuadadanan, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) See, there you go, because there's like a million different ways to pronounce that. I've heard Tuthadadanan, I've heard Tuadadanan, I've heard Tua, you know, a million different ways. So, silly fairies. 
So <laughs> I guess on that topic, though, uh, yeah. in your research into Welsh UFO stories or British UFO stories or even European ones, which we don't mm-hmm. obviously hear a lot about here in the States, um, have you noticed any trends which are markedly different from what's experienced stateside? Or does it seem to be do the does the phenomenon seem to operate by the same rules over there as it would here? Well, rules in quotation marks, if they're <laughs> if they exist. Yeah, it's, it's, it kind of runs parallel. Okay. Um, obviously, back in the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, you had the classic flying saucer shape, and that was heavily influenced by pop culture, some might say as well. Um, the movies and the books and the um, you know the comics that were coming out at the time and the descriptions um, that pe- eyewitnesses were giving the press. You know, it's kind of, it's your classic hubcap shape or your two dinner plates on top of each other kind mm-hmm. of UFO mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Um, I mean, in the UK, the triangles, the Welsh triangle doesn't necessarily mean the triangle-shaped craft. It just happened to be three separate points um, in Wales where all these sightings and encounters were happening. So it was kind of like a Bermuda triangle rather than a, oh. a flying triangle. I mean, because, the you know, it's like Pembrokeshire, uh, Dufford, um, possibly around Carmarthenshire as well. Right. And uh, as far as north as Aberystwyth, which is basically coastal central, or central of the coast. So when you say uh, akin to the Bermuda Triangle, is that area known just for UFO sightings or do other anomalous events occur there? Ghosts, cryptids, things like that. And Wales has always had a long history of uh, hauntings and ghosts. You know, some of the castles, there's a famous, um, I can't remember the name of the castle at the moment, but Black Sabbath used it to record and rehearse one of their albums. I think it may have been Paranoid that they actually recorded there. Oh. Um, because they they went to Los Angeles after that, I think. Or it could have been Black Sabbath, uh, could have been Masters of Reality. Um, but yeah, I mean, Geezer Butler, the bassist from Black Sabbath, um, he's gone on record as saying that the woman in the on the cover of the first Black Sabbath album, that was influenced by a figure that he saw at the end of his bed while he was in you oh. know, the castle while they were rehearsing. And there's been... You know, Tony Iommi said to have dabbled a little bit in mm-hmm. certain things, and that's how he kind of, you know, he's able to play with washing up liquid fingertips. Yeah, because mm-hmm. he lost his uh, fingertips in an industrial accident when mm-hmm. he was younger. Ah, the fact that he's as good a guitar player as he as he is without essentially having fingertips is insane. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, amazing. And I read his autobiography, and you know the how he actually taught himself to get back into playing guitar as well as he could. You know, it's just incredible dedication yeah. and, um, you know, determination. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. So, so I guess uh, continuing along that topic, one thing that has come up pretty often in the books we've covered on the show, as well as our conversations, um, is the siloing effect that tends to happen not only within ufology, but the paranormal community at large. You know, the nuts and bolts researchers don't really want to associate with the woo researchers and neither of them want to talk to the ghost hunters and no one likes the cryptid people. So I, I guess the question is, do you see these phenomenon as, in, you know, innately siloed out like they are distinctly different things? Or do you fall more on the you know, Skinwalker Ranch, Whitley Strieber, John Keel stream of thought where these all might be interrelated in somehow? Personally, I think they're all interrelated. I, you know, 
it's not just a case of the nuts and bolts UFO people hate, you know, the paranormal ghost hunters hate the cryptids, hate the Bigfoot, you know, hunters. You get these little divisions within ufology as well. You've got the experiences and the contactees. You've got people who believe, you know, these things are interdimensional. Um, you've got the crypto terrestrial camp as well, where, you know, people believe that, you know, these are an ancient race which have been hidden and are just making themselves known to us now because we've reached a certain technological level. Um, so there's there's all these, like, I like to call them like different tribes um, or clans, basically, because, you know, what the experiences will come up with something and then that will be immediately poo-pooed by the nuts and bolts people. Um, and everyone wants data and you've got the foyer paperwork junkies, you've got... Um, you know, you got the historians, you got people who just will not accept anything that's put in front of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all these different kind of factions that you need to that bounce off each other. And I think, you know, if you spend any time in UFO Twitter, you're gonna see this. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Um, it, it can get quite fraught at times, um, but it's not as bad as it used to be. Yeah, I've I, I've noticed that too. Like, especially over the last, I'd say probably years, year or so. It, it I don't want to say it's gotten um, not hostile because there are definitely conversations that happen that are still very <laughs> hostile. Mm-hmm. But I, I I definitely see a lot more um, conversation rather than argument. There is, and you know that's testament to people who just don't want to fight anymore, mm-hmm. um, and people you know. They, they fan the block button, they just ignore, you know, people who are trying to start a fight. Um, I mean, the big thing at the moment is you have the people in the drone camp, you know, kind of targeting the, like the Tic Tac and the more, the gimbal kind of people. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, I mean, if you couldn't make it up, at times, you know, it would take, if a screenwriter had sat down or a novelist had sat down and decided to create this multi-factional kind of environment that played out on social media, um, and then, you know, on blogs and things like that, you know, you'd think he was totally nuts, but it is, it does happen. And people often comment that we're all looking for the same answers. Mm-hmm you know, to the same problem. So why is this continual fight? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, like why I, ultimately we're all looking for the same thing. We're just, some of us are going about it differently than others. And I mean, I'm, I'm in the same camp as you, like I believe in, in a very strong way that all of this is interconnected. So I think it's kind of silly when we argue at each other when I, when I'm of the opinion that everybody's opinion could be valid, you know, cause ultimately we don't know. So yeah. I, I, on that note, I want to ask a potentially very loaded question that just about everyone in ufology hates to be asked. So I apologize for that. Go for uh, it. Uh, so I, I guess if you had to put your, your foot in the sand and you had to say, uh, this is what I think the phenomenon is, uh, or rather what maybe even just what you would prefer it to be, uh, what would you say? Um. I think if you'd asked me this five years ago, I would have said something completely different. If you'd asked me six months ago, I probably would have said something different. At this current moment in time, I believe that somebody somewhere has the technology 
to traverse that space in a way that we are unaware of at this point. Um, whether that's flipping in and out of, you know, using wormholes or just coming in from some kind of mass teleportation device and just appearing in our space. But at the same time, I, I take it you've watched or you know of Val Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, if you remember, one thing that stuck with me, you know, from watching the film, because I was unaware of the graphic novel at the time, um, is when Val and his um, female companion, I can't remember her name now, but they're taken to the middle of this desert and there's nothing about, and they're given these special goggles to put on. And as soon as they put those goggles on, they can see everything in a different light spectrum. And there's this whole marketplace and bazaar that they can see but they're not allowed to interact with anything. So I kind of think that's possibly, you know, what might be happening as well. We, we have a limited visible spectrum that we can see with our own 3D eyes. Um, so why if there is something existing in the ultraviolet spectrum, why if there's something in the infrared spectrum that we can't physically see at this moment because we haven't got the physical capability to do so? Uh, that's interesting. And I never uh, when I was watching that film, I never thought at the time uh, to relate it to I mean, I'm trying to think of what the word is for it. Uh, the shadow biome hypothesis. I think that's what people end up calling it. I got the yeah. whole idea. We have realities layered upon us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's interesting. Um, so I guess in in moving forward as mm-hmm. a, as a collective uh, as a collective of ufologists, if such a thing exists, I guess, how do you see, do you see a way forward for us to begin reducing those divisions and maybe begin embracing all these other ideas and trying to stop being, you know, argumentative little dickholes to each other? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I think the biggest problem that people have is that um, the long term antagonists of the UFO problem were the US government mm-hmm. um, going back to, you know, 1947, let's take that as a starting point. As everybody knows, Roswell, something crashed. There was a whole press release sent around the world. Our US Air Force captures flying saucer. And then the following day, no, it's not. Um, So that's kind of where people believe that the government cover-up started, or at least the Air Force cover-up started in, you know. Uh, And from then on, there's been a total distrust of anything that the government says in relation to this topic. And we're not talking just about the US government. It's the intelligence agencies as well. Mm -hmm. And the military divisions, kind of like everybody wanted a piece of this topic, but none were actually willing to put their foot forward and admit it in public. Um, Until, of course... Um, the, the article by Ralph Blumenthal, Helen Cooper, and Leslie King came out in the New York Times, December 2017, mm-hmm. where it was admitted that the Pentagon had spent a good deal of money investigating UFOs. Um, and then that's kind of where the new genesis point started, where we knew that the US government had had well, after Project Blue Book closed in 1969, mm-hmm. they said they weren't even bothering about it anymore. You know, no, we don't bother investigating flight sources. There's no threat at all. So for that story to come out and for the admission that, 
the US government had spent $22 million investigating UFOs as recently as 2009 to 2012, I believe. Uh, 2008 to 2010. Yeah, that came as a shock to many people. Um, and I think there's still this distrust with the uh, recent signing of the, um, you know, President Biden signing the NDAA mm-hmm. back in December and the creation of this new Pentagon office. People are still unsure how it's going to, you know, whether it's going to have any kind of oversight or anything like that. You know, are is the Department of Defense still going to hide things or, you know, kind of keep things close to its chest rather than actually bringing stuff forward, which which is what the people want. I mean, in the UK, it's even worse, to be honest. We were told in 1952, yeah, there's no threat. So, uh, yeah, and that's your lot. Have you noticed any change in how the UK media is treating the topic since all this these things have developed over here in the States? Um, yes and no. It does get – it goes in uh, waves. I mean, when there's a big story in the US, the you know, the UK press will cover it with a degree of seriousness, at least in the printed press or the online press. Um, broadcast media tends to leave it alone, especially the BBC, who seem to have a you know, bug up their butt about this topic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we are seeing and you know, through our efforts with UAP Media UK, we are getting through to journalists. And saying this is the kind of stuff you should be covering if you want to be taken seriously and if you want to seem at least a little bit knowledgeable on the subject, um, rather than just saying, you know, printing stories where some guy sees a shadow on Google Earth and claims it's a 24 alien in Antarctica. You know, it's that kind of stuff is just clickbait and, um, you know, it helps no one. Right. So I guess on that topic, uh, you referenced OSAP there, and we just read Mm. the Skinwalkers of the Pentagon book ourselves. Yeah, good book. So it's pretty fresh in our mind. Uh, One question we wanted to pick your brain about is part of that that whole era or that topic that we found so interesting was the supposed heavy involvement of the private sector in UAP research. Uh, In your opinion, I guess, what are the ethics at play when billionaires and private companies take the lead on anomalous research? And do you think that's more or less troubling than the idea of the government taking complete ownership of the work? Well, I guess you have to think that, you know, in the private sector, there's more money available um, for a start. You know, you don't have to take it through, as in the case of the UFC, you don't have to justify what you're spending and how you're spending it and why you're, you know, what you're actually spending it on. You know, when that $22 million came out, you know, people were saying, why are we spending that much? You know, how, who authorized the spending of that money? You know, even if it was in conjunction with uh, Robert Bigelow and his bass company. But I think if you think back to, you know, like the 50s and 60s and the rumors of UFO crashes and the possibility that there was debris, um, technological material available, and whether they went to, a group of aerospace contractors or whether they went to just one aerospace contractor, you know, we don't know where any of this material is or where it went. There's no chain of custody. Um, And so if that kind of story comes out, the one aerospace contractor benefited 
from close ties with the government and got access to this advanced technological material. That's given them the advantage over their competitors over decades, which has probably caused, you know, allowed them to have better contracts, better defense contracts in the case of like Northrop or um, Lockheed, people like that. You know, are they going to be looked upon more favorably than the other companies? And do those other companies who missed out, do they have a case to sue the government for kind of being at a technological disadvantage? These are the kind of questions that will come out, Uh I think, once that information comes forward. Also, there's the question uh, that I've seen debated recently of UFO amnesty in that if the cover up is real and if people have had their reputations ruined or, God forbid, if people have been murdered to keep this secret, uh, should there be legal repercussions for the people who kept the secret, you know? And I, I've seen a lot of debate back and forth of people saying, well, if you don't give them blanket amnesty for the things they were done, we will never get disclosure because them admitting that it's real would be admitting to crimes that will put them in prison and <laughs> people won't do that. Neat how information is prioritized over living people's lives. Yeah. And if you think it's only going to take one experiencer or, you know, someone who claims they're an experiencer or someone who claims they're an abductee only takes one person to win a court case. It's true. And then, you know, the floodgates open. Or God forbid, imagine if the, uh, the you know, the old the old story, the old conspiracy theory is real that uh, President Eisenhower signed an agreement with the Greys to allow Americans to be abducted. I can imagine the lawsuits that would come out of that. You think it was Eisenhower or was it Johnson? I've, I've always heard Eisenhower. I, I haven't heard uh, Johnson, but I mean, I honestly always kind of took that as an apocryphal story anyway. I would believe mm-hmm. Lyndon B. Johnson would do that. Yeah, I mean, I believe <laughs> Lyndon B. Johnson would do it. I <laughs> I always heard it was Eisenhower. I can't deal with this in the wake of the assassination. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep it off my desk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the Eisenhower. Um, can we call it a myth? Can we call it a legend? Sure. I don't know, I don't know where, how we could classify that. Um, but yeah, the fact that he was uh, out playing golf and suddenly had to disappear off to a dentist. And while he was at this dentist, he supposedly met up with representatives of an alien race to discuss terms of earthly cooperation. Um, it's, I mean, it's a great story. Whoever made it up, whether it's real, you know, it's still up for debate. But I, I believe that any deal would have been made before that. I mean, you know, there's even talk that the Roswell, you know, the Roswell crash, if anything, did crash there, which obviously the general consensus is that something did. Um, There's always been taught, well, more recently, there's been taught that that was a gift rather than an actual crash um, to allow us to get things like, you know, I'm going to reference the film Men in Black here. Uh, You know, we get stuff like um, fiber optics, microwave ovens. You know, we have the technology to do that, Velcro. You know, there's there's lots of inventions that seem to pop up in 1947-48, if you have a look. And that's always been like the conspiracy theory that we got this advanced tech. You know, even like LED lights and um, the transistors, which, you know, the transistors for radios, that's been debunked because that was developed during the Second World War anyway. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's those kind of conspiracy theories. Um, 
that kind of gather pace and it's just like pushing the boulder down a hill and <laughs> it doesn't stop until it hits something, which usually ends up being the truth. So I guess on that topic, though, I mean, there's just so many stories in uh, ufology that, you know, again, you could call a legend or apocryphal because people go back and forth so uh, readily on if they're true or not. And that's certainly complicated by people who are perpetuating known hoaxes. And I, I mm-hmm. guess we wanted to ask, what are your I mean, obviously, we know you probably don't have fond feelings for the hucksters and hoaxers, um, but I, I guess how how do you think ufology as a whole can begin to move past uh the damage that those people have already done. And also like when you're talking to people, how do you measure uh, the reliability of that source? Um, right. The first that's a question of two parts, isn't it? So the first part, I would say the best way to nullify um, the hucksters, the hoaxes, the charlatans, the frauds, the people looking for attention without substance is to ignore them. You know, it's like the classic, Tolper, you know, if you feed it enough, it's going to grow and grow and grow and become more powerful. If you leave it alone, it's just going to shrink to nothing. Right. Oh, God, I'm um, now, I'm now going to think of hoaxers as tulpas because of that. <laughs> Starve them. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, just ignore them on the social platforms, try and get them deplatformed. You know, that's the only way to kind of nullify any kind of exposure they have and stop the super chats. Because if you're, I mean, there's a couple of classic charlatans who are earning like thousands upon thousands of super chats for an hour long video, which gives you no information whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It's terrible. Um, And it is, I guess it is the responsibility of the social media platforms as well to try and, I don't want to say police it because that's where we get into very murky territory, Mm -hmm. Um, but they just need to keep an eye on it. Um, it doesn't doesn't harm anyone to do a reality check on the kind of claims that these people are coming up with. Mm-hmm. You know, it probably serves us better if we don't muddy the waters. That makes sense. Um, and as as for personal vetting of someone, um, I do do research. Um, I look into the backgrounds of people. Um, if it's someone that I've known for a while, or if it's some someone that. You know, I just want to talk to you because I'm interested in what they have to say and because I've listened to them before. You know, that's kind of how I approach uh, my interviews. Um, I mean, classic case, this last issue, I got an interview with L.A. Marzulli, who is a biblical scholar. He's very knowledgeable about kind of the Nephilim and the Watchers. Um, And I used to listen to some of his stuff a good, you know, five, six years ago. But he's always been someone that I wanted to talk to because he just seems like I could learn something from him. You know, whether it's the information himself, it's, uh, sorry, whether it's the information that he's delivering to me, it's just the way he goes about it and the way he's, his passion more than anything. Mm-hmm. You know, he believes in what he's researching. He believes he's on the path to an answer to what he's researching. So, you know, I want to, I'd be the first one to admit that I have a very kind of wide spectrum of readers because I try and cover quite a lot of topics. Mm. Um, so I try and give, you know, the readers something different every issue. Oh, we appreciate it. It's a very slick looking magazine. Yeah. Uh, and also the art- that article in question was fascinating. I actually just read that last night. 
Yeah, I mean, you find out the background of some of these people, and you know, some of them have gone through some intense, trying times in their background, and then for them to come out of that and to do what they're doing now and to be, you know, successful in a way as well with what they're doing. So out of curiosity, um, yep. in the course of either working on your book or working with the magazine, uh, have you ever had anyone try to approach you and pull the wool over your eyes or try to uh, trick you into into printing something that isn't exactly true? Or generally speaking, do you have to approach other people to get them to come out of the magazine? Um, I have had people approach me, but generally I approach people um, because they either they have a book out or, as I've said before, you know, it's someone I've wanted to talk to for a long time. I mean, my favorite interview, I think, I was probably with Peter Lavender, um, the author of um, – he's working with TTSA at the moment on the Secret Machines fiction books uh, – non-fiction books, sorry – um, so he's done three. He's done two. He's submitted the third one for approval. Um, he's also, he, he kind of writes things in trilogies because uh, he wrote the trilogy of Sinister Forces, which looked at the um, the occult links to the American political system. Um, and he's, you know, in the last five years as well, he's written a, um, a trilogy of books based on the Lovecraft mythos. Oh, really? Um, yeah, so you've got uh, a professor of archaeology who gets dragged into this Lovecraftian mystery. Um, and obviously the usual suspects end up appearing at some point or another. It's pretty cool. Cosmic horror is my bread and butter, so that uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. that uh, perked my interest. Yeah, I mean, it's all set in modern day, and it's, you know, you've got the backdrop of... Um, this this professor has PTSD from the first Gulf War as well. So you've got all that kind of mixed in. Okay. To as well. And you learn more about the Yazidi tribe in northern Iraq as well. So you kind of you learn a bit of history with the Middle East as well, alongside, you know, throwing in the old uh, Cthulhu spawn and the old ones, you know, and the deep ones and all the others. Mm-hmm. Oh, very cool. So kind of just to change gears a little bit, another aspect of your work that we wanted to talk about was your work with UAP Media UK. Yeah. Um, this is it seems to be a pretty a relatively new outfit that has come together, uh, obviously involves you and the gentleman over at that UFO podcast, which all three of us are listeners of. Yeah, I love that show. <laughs> so I guess, can you talk to Great us show. a little bit about uh, what UAP Media UK is and what their mission is and what your involvement is with it? Sorry, three questions there for you. <laughs> <laughs> questions right okay so um it first started it was born out of frustration um let's put it that way during lockdown because um andy mcgrillan the host of that ufo podcast and his co-host dan zetterstrom at the signal on twitter um they were constantly frustrated with the way the subject was being treated in the uk press um, and they wanted to do something about it. So they approached me, they approached um, Adam Goldsack as well, who's been heavily involved in like the hashtag end UAP secrecy, I suppose you can call it social media activism, um, trying to get senators and, you know, the press to take the UAP subject seriously. Um, so we got together, we banded around a few ideas and our main target was just to get 
a serious piece on UFOs into the UK press, which happened. Um, you know, whether we were directly responsible for that, we don't know. <laughs> we've never been told. We'd like mm. to think we were. Um, and we like to think we've had a, you know, an, an influence since then. Um, I mean, it started probably about a year ago, in all honesty, um, when we first started hitting kind of like the different journalists. We sent out newsletters. We did Twitter campaigns. Um, and a few journalists have come to us as well just to, you know, pick our brains about a few things, you know, ask us if we can put them in touch with other people as well. So we're kind of, the campaign kind of generated momentum and then when the UAPTF report came out in the summer, the preliminary assessment, we kind of gained more traction through that. Um, and yeah, we're just kind of, the biggest stumbling block we have is the UK government and the reluctance by our ministers to, you know, talk about the subject with any seriousness. Is it still that they're just kind of caught up in the stigma of it all? Like with the UK government? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, they throw out the old boilerplate answer that, you know, the UFO desk was closed in 2009 and, you know, the Ministry of Defence sees no defence threat or potential threat in UFO reports, so we're not going to bother investigating it, which, which seems pretty... Uh, in, it's oh, every time I hear something of that, it sounds just so insane to me. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah. Well, it's the the idea of looking at it strictly from a net, from a defense perspective just doesn't it, it doesn't make sense to me because there's there there is if you look at it even slightly below the surface level, there's so much more to the UAP phenomenon than just whether or not they are a, a, a problem. For yeah, us, exactly. like if they're going to attack us, yada, 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 whatever. There's so much more to it than that. And the disinterest just baffles me. It it, it always mark, reminds me of like, imagine you came home, all right, and you went into your bedroom and there was just a guy standing in the corner of your bedroom holding a knife. And you call the cops and they come and he, that guy doesn't move. He doesn't talk. He doesn't really do anything. He's just standing there with a the knife. And after a couple of days of him not leaving, he hasn't attacked anyone. So the cops say, well, clearly he's not a threat. So we're going to leave him there. And then they leave your house. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's what it always feels yeah. like in my head when I hear that. I'd move. It's his house now. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh. I mean, we, we have tried to, we, we are currently working on a new template letter to encourage um, people to write to their own uh, representative, you know, their, their member of parliament. Um but because the way the system is set up, you cannot write to any other member of parliament, whether they're a cabinet minister or not. You can only write to the person who represents your constituency, your, you know, your little your area. Voting area, yeah. basically. Which is I know short sighted. Um, but then from the other side of the coin, you know. You don't want a thousand letters reaching you from, right. you know, all over the country saying, why aren't you looking at UFOs? Show us the aliens. Come on, where are they? <laughs> so I, I think there needs to be a more considered approach. And with the advent of Project Galileo set up by uh, Harvard professor, Abby Loeb, mm -hmm. um, we're going to use that in our next template as well. And we're going to try and encourage discussions with the scientific and academic community. 
because I think we just need to bypass um, official dumb in the UK completely. I mean, I don't know what they're doing at the best of times. So, you know, let's go to someone who does know what they're doing. On that note, um, are there any, I guess, British Avi Loeb's out there? Is there anyone in your uh, on your side of the ocean that are seems to be picking it up from an academic angle? We're looking. <laughs> okay. We're looking. <laughs> um, there's no one willing to give themselves to the publicity that Avi Loeb has. That make, makes sense. I mean, oh yeah. I'd be shocked if there wasn't a member or two of uh, Jacques Vallée's secret college over there, but mm-hmm. I I fully believe it. You know, at the um, you know the Oxford or Cambridge institutions, one of those, the public schools. You know, the, the there has to be there is definitely an interest from a scientific view at some institutions. It's getting those people to try and admit it yeah, in public because nobody wants to be the UFO guy because as soon as that happens, that's their career basically over. You know, the 10 years disappear, you know, the, the peer-reviewed papers are cast to the bottom of the pile. Mm-hmm. So it's going to take a lot of effort to try and get, um, yeah, try and get that public stigma removed. Do you think... Um that like with Avi Loeb and Project Galileo and then with the U.S. government opening up this mm-hmm. quote-unquote permanent office for, for you know, investigating UAPs, do you think that, that, that the U.S. Uh, having this start happening over here might help you guys leverage getting more people on, uh, in the U.K. involved? I think it's going to have uh, an effect worldwide because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, the probably the democratic nations of the world always follow the American lead. Um, and with the so-called special relationship between the US and the UK, it's inevitable that something will happen at some time. I mean, the French have been looking at this, uh, mm-hmm. the Italians, the Japanese. It's pretty clear that the Chinese and the Russians would have been looking at this as well. Yep. Um and yeah, there's a frustration that more European countries aren't talking about it. Um, I understand that the Germans are pretty close-minded. Um, you know, they don't want to talk about it. Um, so it's kind of, we're at a crossroads where you have the American government, Project Galileo, and other affiliations steaming ahead down the highway. Um, we have Russia and China going in opposite directions or in the same direction. And then you've got the rest of us just still at the crossroads, um, wondering which way to go. When it comes to, I guess, evolving uh, evolving that topic in European nations, do you think mm-hmm. it's more it's more likely going to be something that is more likely to happen slowly over time as a culture and attitude shift or – do you think it's going to take some sort of a large event? I'm thinking uh, the U.S. government uh, disclosing what they know or a mass sighting that can't be ignored, things like that. I think it'd be both. Okay. In the next, in the next few years, I think the progress, you know, if we look at the progress that has been made on this topic, both in the mainstream media and at a congressional level since 2017, um, to have a dedicated office researching and investigating this 
at the Pentagon mm-hmm. when they, the Department of Defense, has categorically denied ever having an interest or even admitting that there might be something out there. You know, for them to suddenly start up this office after a breaking news story for four years ago, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more development. I think the foot has been pushed down on the accelerator and it's just going to ramp up and ramp up and other nations will start catching on. Whether we get to the United Nations and whether there is something akin to 1978 when Alan Heineck and Jacques Wille spoke on behalf of Grenada, whether we get that situation, you know, there's rumours that San Marino were gearing up to say something at the UN. Um, whether that happened, who knows? We'll have to wait and see on that. Um, but I think, you know, with regards to mass sighting, does it have to happen over the United States for people to believe it? You know, if it happened over Russia, would people still believe it? If it happened over China? You know, or if it happened over, you know, Botswana or, you know, Australia or some other less developed nation, you know, would people believe it? I mean, the the UAP phenomenon in Brazil has been for decades has been very extreme and violent. There have been many documented deaths post UAP experiences in Brazil. And as far as we can tell from the outside world, their government has buried it and the rest of South America has completely ignored it. Well, particularly you're talking about the Calaris incident. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, They didn't necessarily bury it. They just sold it to Robert Bigelow. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. Yeah. Fair. But yeah. So, so, you know, they they didn't bury it. He did. Yeah. It, It almost, it almost seems like what we would need is for there to be a mass sighting, not over any one country, but like a mass sighting over the UN or a mass sighting right. that happens in multiple countries around the world simultaneously to kind of break through that ontological barrier in a lot of people's minds. Yeah, I mean, something like Arrival, the movie, would be insane. <laughs> yes. Um, but if you think of Arthur C. Clarke's book, um, Childhood's End, Great you book. know, very different to the TV series that came out a few years ago. Um, where in the TV series, it was a farmer that was actually contacted by, you know, the extraterrestrials, where, it, as in the book, it was a member of the United Nations who was contacted. So, you know, if we are going to get contact, I mean, people will say, yes, there's already been contact, so what are you talking about? But if we're going to get verifiable, um, incontrovertible evidence of extraterrestrial contact, then it does have to be in a built-up setting. Yeah. You know, it has to be like something lands in Central Park. Right. Or something, you know, something lands on the Sunset Strip. Biden brings a gray out during the State of the Union address. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So something yeah. yeah, something insane and in a place where it's it, it, you know, it's hard to try and just write it off. Yeah, maybe like, you know, the Macy's 
day parade or something, you know, right. UFO comes down there and people think it's a balloon. Oh, that'd be so cool. It just uh-huh. casually joins the line of floats and it's just bobbing <laughs> yeah. along for about 30 minutes. And inside the pilots, like the social contract dictates that I finish the parade. Um, I don't want to disrupt these people's event. Um, they, I, I love the idea that aliens are aware of the social contract. I, yeah. I feel like maybe they're secretly very polite. <laughs> It's when they're faced with a giant inflatable minion. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a couple more questions. We don't have very long yet, so we want to make sure we get to these. Um, so the next cool. one okay. is a, a little. Uh, I mean, it's a little goofy. So first, the first question here is: If you could land an exclusive interview with any one person to print in your magazine or your book, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. Well, I, I drew up a bucket list when I first started the mag and I did that bucket list. So I drew up a new one. Um, Tom DeLong, to be honest, is still on that bucket list. That's a um, good one. Yeah. Carl Sagan would have been a great one. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, basically because of his private stance on the subject rather than his public stance, <laughs> which was very different. Um, Jay Allen Hynek, obviously. That that would be my pick as well. But I think um, I'm going to throw a curveball and put General Raimi in there. Oh, that that is a good pick that I would not have thought of. Actually, yeah. that's interesting. If it was a warts and all, don't tell me any BS. You know what do you know? Then yeah, General Raimi. Yeah, that'd be a good one. Um, so all right, so getting a little stranger. If or not a person, but if you could interview a single, I'm going to say paranormal entity. Although uh, you can count extraterrestrials in that, and they'll tell you everything. Who are you talking to? <laughs> Anybody? Why or anything? Tell me anything. Mm-hmm. Assuming you know they're real, you could say whatever is real in this situation. It's hypothetical. All right. You know what? I'm going to say Spielberg. Oh, that's a good cryptid. Steven Spielberg. Because <laughs> I think he knows more than he's ever let on, and he's just drip, drip, drip that, that, that's, throughout his life. That is actually, that is a very There good are answer. giant mechanical sharks living in the Atlantic up by Coney Island. Well, I don't need that nightmare. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm already scared of sharks. Thank he, you. He released all of his fake props from Jaws into the ocean. He's like, somehow yeah. they began to breed. Oh, God, that's horrifying. They became sentient as well. So that's <laughs> something to look out for. Uh, it's like a horrifying mixture of Jaws and Terminator. How could oh, you possibly God. make a shark worse? Well, let's get, let's make it out of metal. Yeah. And now yeah. it doesn't feel pain. <laughs> And now, Mr. Spielberg, we're going to invent a new type of war crime that we can try you for, and you are going to all the way jail. Bond a shark jail. Okay, so our last question before uh, we uh, we wrap things up here. Um, obviously, we know that you're working on the book, and you've mm-hmm. hinted at a few things that UAP Media UK is going to be working on. Uh, yep. Is there any upcoming projects or anything like that that you'd like to talk about? Um. I'd keep an eye out on the summer months okay. um, for something that I'm working on. Okay. Um, All right. Can't disclose like too much yet, but it's going to be multi-platform. Okay. Um, I do. Oh, and yeah, what I remember, there's also the Unidentified Aerial Podcast. 
um, which is myself and Graham Rendell, um, author of Before Roswell, um, an excellent book on the European food fighter phenomenon during mm-hmm. World War II. And we're basically chatting about, um, well, just having a conversation about everything UFO related, whether it's, you know, the cases, the people, the books, the movies, the discussions, the political climate, everything that was going on around the UFO subject. Um, we're treating it as kind of like an entry level discussion. So, you know, if people are only picking up on this subject from 2017, or from, you know, the UAPTF report, you know, we are, we, we are showing that there is a history to this subject, you know, all right, we're starting in the 1940s, mm-hmm. um, which is rich with UFO events and cases and people. So it's going to be an interesting podcast, an interesting new project. And hopefully, you know, people will pick up on it and, learn something as they go so has that already started or are you uh is that coming up when this interview comes out it'll be probably a few episodes in okay looking forward to it yeah me too all right well our last question is one that uh, you've probably been asked before where can people find you okay so the magazine is free to download as a pdf at Mm shadowsmagazine.co.uk all issues are there so I guess that'll be 13 issues. Awesome. Um, considering I only wanted to do 10 when I first started out, I think I've surpassed that. So yay me. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter at Shadows Magazine. Um, unidentified Aerial Podcast as well. And, you know, I'd like to just give a shout out to my UAP Media UK colleagues, Andy McGrillin at the UFO Podcast, Adam Goldsack, Graham Randall. Vinnie Adams and Daniel Zetterstrom. All names that we hope to have on this show as well at some yeah. point. Yep. <laughs> well, it has been such a privilege talking with you, Dave. Thank you so much yeah, for taking the much. time. We really, really appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. It's been a pleasure, guys. Enjoyed it. All right. Well, we'll uh, give you back the rest of your evening. I, I imagine it's very late where you are. So have a great night. Thank you. You too.